hear the Word of God this morning from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to read verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses when he has grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would show us wonderful things out of the law of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The Gravedigger File, Os Guinness recalls seeing a a cartoon. It was uh, in three frames. First frame, there is a rickety old Noah's Ark chuggling away in heavy seas, approaching a brand new liner, modern liner. In the second frame, we see the Noah's Ark up against the liner and up the gangplank, the people are leaving the ark and they're making their way onto the liner. And the captain who is welcoming them says, welcome aboard, not a moment too soon, judging by that old tub. And then in the third frame, you see the liner moving into into the horizon, leaving the Noah's ark adrift at sea. And as it moves away, you barely distinguish the name at the back of the liner, the SS Titanic. Well, all things that are modern aren't necessarily good things. Certainly the world of the media, the arts, entertainment, as well as the academy have for generations now wanted us to believe in the myth of indestructible and infallible modernity. In Moses' day, the rationale might have been something like this. Moses, look where you live. Look at what point in history you live. You live in Egypt. It is the wealthiest, the most influential, power on earth. This is Egypt's time. Why don't you get with the program? Seize the day. Grab with gusto all that Egypt has to give you. Now, the people of God have heard an argument similar to that, uh, repeated over and over again in many places and at repeated points in history for the last 4,000 years. Moses grew up in Egypt. 
The argument that Moses was confronted with was a similar argument. And we, the church today, hear it all the time from the world, the culture, and society. And if you're a millennial, you might be surprised to know that your attitude towards modernity is similar to the one that the church at its best, that is, when it hasn't been trying to copy modernity, the church at its best has always held the same point of view. Faith has its reasons. Look at these words that you, you find in this passage we just read, verse 28. He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Now, what does it mean by the reproach of Christ? John Owen, a 17th century writer, takes us right back to the very beginning of the Bible, right to the second page, perhaps, in your translation, to chapter 3, verse 15, where the very first promise in all of the Bible is made, and it's the promise of a descendant of the first couple, a male child, a son who would be given, who would finally smash evil and destroy the devil. That's the very first promise in the Bible. And since that promise of the, the Son, the, the Christ, was given right at the very beginning of the Bible, from then on throughout all of the Bible right to the end, Christ is the, the life and soul and the all, the everything to the church in all ages. Because from Him all is derived, and in Him all is centered. The writer to the Hebrews is going to say this in a later chapter. He's going to say this about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in saying that, what he's, what he's saying is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not come into existence when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the man Jesus came into existence, the Son of God who was joined to the humanity of Jesus, did not come into existence when Jesus was born. And that wherever you go in the Scripture, and from the earliest days, Christians have said that all of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is Christian Scripture. Wherever you go, there you find the Son of God. Not just in one or two prophecies that modern scholars will agree were kind of prophecies of the coming of Christ. Not just in those one or two that they're prepared to accept and accede to. But that every time you see the word God Every time you see the word Lord, every time you see those two words together, or you read about the Lord of armies, or the Lord Almighty, or the Lord of hosts, every time you see that word, the New Testament tells you, you are hearing about the one God of Israel, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the God we know as Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is all over the Bible. 
And so the writer to the Hebrews can say that Moses, living 1,600 years before Christ, Moses was prepared to suffer the reproach of Christ rather than to take the treasures of Egypt. And that's an amazing thing because he is the ultimate cause and reason for the sufferings of all of his people from the beginning of history to the end of history. From the very beginning of history, this conflict between evil and good, between Satan and God. And from the beginning, it was believing the promise of that coming son who would crush Satan that caused a separation in humanity. We today are, are very anxious about the causes of division in our country and in the world. The causes of division are many. There's class consciousness that causes division. There's race consciousness that causes division. We're going to address these in October. The issue of race and reconciliation as a church. But let me tell you this, there is a more fundamental division that exists. And it is not race, and it is not class, it is not color, it is the fundamental division between those who have Christ and those who do not. Those other things are no cause for division except that we make them such. But this division is fundamental. This separation among human beings is fundamental to humanity right from the very beginning of the human story. And right from the very beginning of the human story, Christ and His people, His church, His mystical body have been one. You know, the, the Bible uses this analogy of the head and the body, and it says, where there's a head, there's a body. Well, you would hope so. Unless you're one of Henry VIII's wives, I suppose, typically, where the head is, there's a body and they're together. That's a good thing. And that image that you have of the head and the body is the image that's used to try and explain to us that whatever happens to the body is felt by the head. Here's what it says in, in the psalm or in Isaiah. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. This is how it works. Jesus' people have been accused as atheists, schismatics, of sedition, of treason. They've been treated with scorn and contempt, with false accusation. And all of this, the Bible says, comes from our association with Jesus. This is what he said. If they hate you, know this, they hated me first. In the Samus, in Psalm 69, it says that their reproach, that is the reproach of his people, has broken his heart. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, we talk about these things not to get your sympathy, not, not for you to feel sorry for us, but as a matter of fact. Now, why should we endure the reproach of Christ? 
That is the association that we have with Him and all that that brings with it. I, I, I was uh, in the UK for 10 days visiting our family, and while I was there, it pained me to watch the news and to see the degree to which Christianity is becoming abhorrent in the media. And that's happened in other parts of the world. It's now happening in the United Kingdom, and you should pray for believers there who are increasingly being marginalized by the state. There were Christians who were afraid, who were homeschooling their children, afraid that in a spot check, someone would come in and find Christian literature in their home, and the children be taken away from them. That's a fear that people have. Whether it's totally legitimate or not, I don't know, but that's a fear that, that people have that they shared with me. Well, why would we endure the reproach of Christ? Well, look what it says here. Moses was prepared to endure the reproach of Christ because he was looking for the reward. Now, this word reward here is very interesting when it's used of Moses. When you go in Scripture, the idea of reward is introduced when God is making the covenant with His people. When God says to His people, I will be your shield and your very great reward. What is God saying? Ultimately, the reward of God's people is to have God Himself, to possess God Himself. Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. He tells us to pray to our Father in heaven. So when He says your reward is in heaven, your reward is in your Father who is in heaven. When Jesus is blessing His people, He says, blessed are you. And He goes on to say, you shall see God. You shall see God. It is the goal, the end. It is the conclusion and beginning for the believer that one day we will see in our flesh God. We will see Him in the face of Jesus Christ, and it will be a vision of such indescribable, heart-throbbing beauty as, will, as is impossible for any description, any language, anywhere, at any time in the world to describe. That one glimpse of beauty, glory that will never be removed from us, that will be there to captivate our hearts and our attention and our eyes when we see Jesus in the glory of the Father, that is in itself one sight which will cause every other concern, every other diversion, every other consideration to be buried long and long gone. To see Him will be to share eternal life with Him. To see Him will be to look on our reward. To see Him will be to enter into the life of the Godhead in a sense of to experience the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What did Moses do? He considered. He reckoned. He made an evaluation. He believed this, he valued it, and he counted on it. He considered the reproach of Christ better than the treasures of Egypt. This is what the Apostle Paul does. He teaches us to reason and reckon in this way. He says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. 
I want you to imagine that you have two scales, these old-fashioned ones where one takes the weight of the other. And I want you to put on this scale this morning, I want you to put on this scale all of the hurts that you carry, all of the broken promises, all of the language, abusive language that has been directed in your part, all of those memories that you can't erase, those failures that you cannot get over, I want you to put them all on this scale. All the burdens that you carry, all the worries that, you, that you've borne, all the ways in which your life has not been the life that you would have chosen or wanted or whatever, all of these things that you've brought with you as the baggage that you've brought into church with you this morning, I want you to put them in that scale. All your sufferings, your bad diagnosis, the pain that you're in, the losses that you've endured, put them in that scale. And then I want you to understand this morning that what God offers us as our exceedingly great reward is that on the other scale, He will place upon us this exceeding weight, weight of glory beyond all comparison the glory of God in Christ. He will place it on this, and in light of that eternal, that universe, that weight of glory, it will be as if everything else was a breath, a breath. That's the destiny of the child of God. And Moses did that calculation. He considered reproach with Christ better than all the treasures of Egypt. Paul talked about this light, momentary affliction and the eternal weight of glory. Now you can see that this led to actual action on Moses' part. As we move on through the text, by faith, he left Egypt. He left Egypt once. Well, as a young man, by faith, he wanted to identify with the Israelites rather than identify as an Egyptian. He'd been brought up in the Egyptian court. He'd been to the best universities and been given the best training. He was learned in all of the language and literature of the Egyptians. And he was living the life of an Egyptian prince at the very nerve center of this world empire. He had everything his heart could desire. But there came a moment in which he turned his back on these and he identified, he went public in identifying himself as an Israelite. And he saw an Israelite, uh, an Egyptian taskmaster who was cruelly mistreating one of the Israelite men, and he, he stepped in, he intervened, and in the intervention, he indirectly caused the death of the Egyptian. And he had to flee. And flee he did. But this time, this time in this particular reference is to another event, right at the very 40 years later, actually, in his life, when he had come back to Egypt, and he's now standing before the Egyptian Pharaoh. Exodus 10 tells the story. Pharaoh said to him, after the series of plagues that had been sent upon Egypt, 
The Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said to him, Okay, I will not see your face again. But not only that, all of these, your servants, they will all come to me, and they will all bow down to me, and they will say to me, please, please, please will you not go and take all your people with you. They will beg us to go. And after that, I'll be gone. And there he is standing before this terrible tyrant, this mass murderer, this monster monarch who has the entire engine of the state at his fingertips, all the machinery of government and military might at his disposal. And we're told that Moses is not afraid of the anger of the king. Twice in this passage, First reference to the anger of the king is when it's talking about his parents. His mom and dad were not afraid of the king's edict when he ruled that all baby boys who were born to Israelites should be put to death. And they thumbed their nose at Pharaoh, and they took matters into their own hands, and they preserved Moses' life. Now Moses acts like his parents, the same spirit of his parents, and he does not fear the king's anger. And when he's left and he has all the people there trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, he says to the people, don't fear, stand firm, and you'll see God's rescue. Moses did not fear, but he endured, we're told. He persevered with a determination in spite of all of the obstacles and difficulties that he faced. He faced the menacing Egyptian army. There was the logistics of moving two million people from Egypt out into the desert with all of their screaming babies and their stuff that they brought with them. That was a big job. And even worse than those two things, there were the people themselves. Moses' biggest problem throughout his entire life was those people who were so ungrateful. They were always murmuring and unbelieving and putting him to the test. Moses is the quintessential passer. But how did he manage this? How did Moses manage to deal with all of these things? The aggression of the Egyptian army, the waywardness of God's people, how did he do it? The passage tells us, Moses believed, by faith it says. He believed God. When he had left Egypt the first time, he went into the desert at Midian, and there he saw this bush burning. At least he thought the bush was burning. There was certainly a fire, but, but the, the fire was not consuming any of the bush. The fire was a self-starting, self-sustaining, self-sustaining fire. It was an amazing image of the God who, lay, who was behind it, God who is dependent on nothing, God who is independent of all of created stuff, who does not need anything. He is not contingent upon anything. This God, this God introduces Himself to Moses. I am 
that I am. I have life in myself. I don't derive it from anyone. It's not contingent on anything. It is not fed. My life is something I have in and of myself. I am. The burning bush was an illustration of that life. 1,500 years later, God came not as a burning bush. He came as a human being. And he introduced himself in the very same terms that God introduced himself to Moses. I am, he said. Before Abram was, I am. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. These are all titles of deity. I am. This is the God in whom Moses believed and in whom we believe. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only God there is. And it's faith in that Lord that enabled Moses to say to the people, the Lord will fight for you and you will hold your peace. He believed. Faith, it says, right at the very beginning of this chapter, is the conviction of things not seen. And so it says that he believed because he saw him who is invisible. When they saw the fire, it wasn't God he saw. God is invisible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is spirit. It's intangible. There's no parts, no body, no parts. No passions driven by some chemical reaction within us as we do. God is outside of our, of our universe, of, uh, of created reality. God is. I am, God says. He's invisible. But Moses believed, and by faith saw the invisible. That is, he saw it intellectually. He saw it with his, with his mind, a mind informed by the Word of God, a mind gripped by the grace of God, a mind shaped by his faith in God. It, it wasn't that this God, although he was invisible, had not communicated. He had communicated. He had communicated by words, by His Holy Spirit, through the prophets, through people like Moses himself. God was speaking. He's a speaking God right from the very beginning when He said, let there be light, and there was light. And we believe that we hear from God. We don't hear, we don't hear a voice in the dark speaking when we're on our own or a voice in our heads. God speaks to us publicly. He spoke when we started worship this morning. His word was the first word we heard. His voice, the first voice we heard when we called ourselves to worship. His will be the last you hear when He pronounces His blessing on you. Yes, He uses human voices as His instrument, but that's all they are is the instrument. His word is 
what does the work? He communicates to his people. By faith, Moses left Egypt. Because he trusted in this God, he believed in this God. And by faith, Moses kept the Passover. That was an expression of his faith. God had said to him, God ordained that they should, uh, that they should leave. He had made this pronouncement. He had pronounced or had announced to, to the Pharaoh that the last plague would be this. It was appropriate. It was limited. Pharaoh had ordered that all the baby boys born to Israelites should be thrown into the, to the, to the Nile and killed, or killed by the sword. It was genocide. God's judgment was that the firstborn of man and beast would be put to death by an angelic destroyer. That's a very heavy thing, isn't it? We think, how could God do that? Well, what we do to one another is a lot worse than that. We put millions of babies to death in their mother's wombs. Don't think it twice about it. But that wasn't all that God said. God gave good news to Egypt, to all of Egypt. Every head of the household, whoever you are, whatever nationality you are, Israelite or Egyptian or whatever, if you take the lamb and you kill the lamb and you take its blood and you sprinkle it on the doorposts and on the lintel of your home, when the angel of death comes, he will pass over you. The angel of death was going to come to Israelite and Egyptian and make no difference. The promise was made to Israelite and Egyptian, no difference. We know that many Egyptians heard the promise, believed the promise, shed the blood, dabbed it on their doorposts, and in the end went with the Israelites when they left Egypt. It was a general promise. And Moses got the people to stick to it. He said, you'd take a lamb for each family, a lamb without blemish. You are to kill it and take the blood and sprinkle it on the, the side posts and on the lintel. And when I see the blood, God says, I will pass over you. And you know, in that very action and in the sprinkling of that blood, and in the creation of the Passover meal, we have a sacrament that points forward to a reality far greater and far bigger than that miracle, that reality that they faced. We've talked about the reproach of Christ. 
Christ himself was at a Passover meal with his people. The unleavened bread had been passed around in in silence, normally in silence. And Jesus had interrupted the silence, and he said to them, this bread is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they came to drink the third cup of wine in the Passover ceremony, this wine mixed with water, which was called the cup of redemption. And this was the cup the Lord chose to focus on, His own sacrificial death. This cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then there was a fourth cup of wine at the Passover meal, referred to as the cup of consummation. And Jesus refused to drink that fourth cup. He said he was going to hold back until the day of his second coming, the restoration of all things, and then he would drink it. He would drink it only when all of his redeemed people, all of his Israel, from every nation and tribe and tongue and people group and race are gathered out of the world and are gathered together in one place, finally, one place, and He will be with them at that moment. And only then, sitting at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, sitting at that heavenly banquet, the heavenly party, to celebrate the victory of God, only then will Jesus drink that fourth cup with His people and celebrate the great victory that He has accomplished. That's why the Apostle Paul says, that when we sit at the Lord's table, we are to keep the festival, for festival it is, because it indicates that we have a knowledge of God, of His kindness towards us that is full and free in Jesus Christ. And there is no other way for us to know that we are secure, that we are saved from eternal death and destruction, and free to live a new life in the Spirit to the glory of God except this that we are being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Now, that's not a physical sprinkling. Like I sprinkled water over those children's heads. It is a spiritual sprinkling. It is the work that happens when I confess my sin to God and I receive Jesus as my Savior. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Here's how Paul summarizes it. How much more then? Being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. This is something modernity avoided. Modernity avoided these kinds of realities. There was no place for the Spirit, no place for the invisible no place for glory, no place for anything larger or bigger than we could construct or imagine. But there is here, there is right now in this place, something vaster than the universe itself. And that something is a someone. And we share fellowship 
with this one. And one day we shall see him in his beauty. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would so work on our imagination and in our intellectual abilities. You know, whatever our education, it's irrelevant, really. This is a work of the Holy Spirit that enlightens the mind and that stirs the imagination and that expands the soul until by faith we're able to see that all of our hopes for eternity are to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray you'd give us that view in Jesus' name. Amen.